Welcome to Business Books and Company. Every month, we read great business books and explore how they can help us navigate our careers. Read along with us so you can become a stronger leader within your company or a more adept entrepreneur. This month, we read No Filter by Sarah Fryer. No Filter covers Instagram's rise from a two-person startup to the second largest social network in the world. Along the way, Fryer explores Instagram influencers, the network's effects on teens, and its sometimes rocky existence within the confines of its parent company, Facebook. Fryer had significant access to key players in the story and chooses to spotlight the relationship between Instagram co-founder and CEO Kevin Systrom and Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg. But before we get into the book, let's introduce ourselves. Hi, I'm David Short. I'm a product manager and former consultant. Hi, I'm Eli Mitchell. I'm a management consultant. And I'm David Kopeck. I'm an assistant professor of computer science. So let's start with the author. Who's Sarah Fryer? Sarah Fryer is a senior technology reporter at Bloomberg News out of San Francisco. So this was actually her, her first book, but she had covered the technology industry for Bloomberg, Business Week, and Bloomberg Television for an extended period of time. And so this was sort of her, her first real, real breakout uh, reporting that led to her promotion at Bloomberg to the, the senior technology position. And I'm sure most of our listeners are familiar with Instagram, but in case some are not, let's get a little bit about what Instagram is. Instagram is the second largest social media platform in the world, um, second behind Facebook, which is debatable if you would separate them as separate platforms because it was acquired by Facebook in 2012. And it passed 1 billion active monthly users in 2018. And I think it's mostly known for its clean aesthetics within the app. Uh, you know, it originally launched with constraints that you could only use square photos. It is known for filters. And it has certainly given rise to the influencer culture and kind of Instagram famous celebrities. So Instagram was founded by Kevin Systrom and Mike Krieger. The two co-founders are written about quite a bit in the book. Can you tell us a little bit about where they came from and how they ended up together? Yeah, so Kevin was born in Holliston, Massachusetts in 1983. His mother worked in marketing at Zipcar and Monster, and his father was a VP in HR at uh, TJX, the, the parent company over TJ Maxx and other retailers. He attended a elite prep school in Concord called Middlesex and then Stanford, where he graduated with a degree in management science and engineering in 2006. It was at Stanford that he met Mike Krieger. Uh, Mike was born in Sao Paulo and moved to the U.S. in 2004 to attend Stanford, where he studied symbolic systems. Kevin actually had a pretty interesting early career. He interned at Odeo, which uh, ultimately became Twitter, where he worked with Jack Dorsey. He actually turned down an opportunity to work at Facebook while he was at Stanford. And then after graduation, he worked at Google for a few years in product marketing. And then Next Stop, which was acquired by Facebook in 2010. So he actually came up with the idea for Instagram while on vacation with his girlfriend when she was unwilling to post photos because of the low quality of the iPhone 4 camera. He and Krieger were already trying to, to start a separate startup, which they'd gotten some funding for. And Krieger had actually, you know, given up a job, which was critical to his you know, immigration status in the U.S. And so it was a, it was a big shock for Mike when uh, Kevin came back from vacation and said they were pivoting to uh, to photography. But ultimately, uh, as Eli talked about, you know, Instagram became a, a huge success. So Kevin served as CEO from 2010 until September 2018. 
and Mike served as CTO from the founding in 2010 until September 2018. So they both uh, resigned on the same day from Facebook in, uh, in September of 2018. So this is a journey they really went on together. Now, take us back to 2010. What was the social media landscape like at that time? And how was Instagram able to find a niche within that landscape? So in 2010, Facebook and Twitter were very prominent platforms at the time. So sort of text was a big focus on social media at the time. I think it was really the the first time that cell phone cameras were starting to get good enough for photography to be worth sharing. And so I think Instagram really was at kind of an inflection point of of mobile and, uh, you know, photos as historically the social media landscape had been more of a, uh, you know, laptop, desktop, web experience. And so, you know, shifting towards mobile apps and then starting to have, you know, a camera in your pocket, Instagram was really at like the the peak of a couple of, of new waves of, of technology changes that really, really opened up the possibilities for what Instagram would become. Yeah, I think at one point when they're talking about the idea for Instagram in the book, uh, they say that they basically hit on all of the buzzwords in Silicon Valley at the time, right? That it was it was mobile, it was location-based, and it was social. Um, the location-based, I think, was actually for their first app, Bourbon, that they had been building. And then obviously that they pivoted more towards the photos. But I guess that that's what the landscape is. I, I'm you know, thinking back, if I find myself uh, an expert on social media platforms in 2010, because that was right as we were all graduating college and kind of going out into the world and starting to use new apps on our phones. And I, I do remember that it was kind of a a world of hearing of new things and not quite knowing what to download or even how to download a new app and how to make use of it. And kind of also when you would download something he didn't necessarily have friends on it. Uh, so the social platform was really important. And another element, though, in terms of like what the world was like, so as short referenced, there were iPhones, right, like starting to be in everybody's hands. So this is, as we think about it, one of the first apps that was entirely mobile based. And then there were cameras on the iPhones, but they were really poor quality. So that was one uh, very interesting, or not interesting, I guess, but. Uh, important element of Instagram was that they had filters that made the low-quality iPhone pictures look artistic. And then they also talk a bit in the book about how it was a 3G network at the time that they were working with. So they had to build the technology so that the photos would load quickly and people wouldn't have a poor user experience. So those were some of the constraints that they were facing in 2010. Yeah, I thought that was a really cool little anecdote in it that at the time 3G was so slow that what Instagram would do is start to load the photo while you were in the filtering editing mode. And so by the time you got through preparing the photo, it actually had already, you know, loaded in the background and it felt like a, you know, instant user experience, even though it had been loading that whole time. Yeah, I think that's a really cool technical detail. And, you know, Instagram was not alone, of course. There were a lot of companies that were trying to get into the space of being the social network for photos. I actually interviewed at one. I think it was called Pinwheel. I have no idea what happened to them. And then a few years later, as an iOS development consultant, I ended up working on one as well. So it was not like Instagram had this incredibly original idea. It was that they did it better than the other, uh, well, allegedly better than the other companies that were in the space at the time. So they quickly got some traction and they started to take off. 
They got helped along the way by certain investors and mentors. Can you tell us a little bit about who were the people that were believing in them, that were close to them, that were, were giving them a little bit of a push, a little bit of an edge, and of course, some money? So I don't remember all the details, so definitely feel free to hop in, uh, Eli and Kopak. But the one that, that re- I noticed the most was Jack Dorsey. So um, Instagram was apparently actually Jack's first angel investment. And so Kevin had actually worked with him when he was when he was interning at Stanford for Odeo and had, you know, maintained a, a friendship and mentorship with with Jack over that period. And so I believe Jack had actually just stepped back from from Twitter. And so it was sort of an opportunity where he had, you know, a lot of free time on his hands and was, you know, had, had finally gotten some some cash. And so, yeah, it was literally the, the first investment that he made. And I think that that like relationship kind of changed a little bit over time, especially with the, the Facebook acquisition. I think Jack was pretty offended uh, that, you know, I think Twitter was also trying to, to court and um, ultimately acquire Instagram, but that, that Kevin ultimately went with Facebook without giving Twitter an opportunity to counter, which was, I guess, part of the, uh, the Facebook um, offer was that they couldn't shop it around. But I think that was like something that, that, that Jack really was upset about ultimately. Then I know Chris Sacco was also one of the, the early investors. I believe Andreessen Horowitz and a couple of, uh, I think maybe it was Benchmark, uh, were, were the other sort of more brand name uh, venture capital firms that were, were early investors. And then the reality is, I, I think it was actually Sequoia put in 50 million or led around that was $50 million valuing Instagram at $500 million literally the week before Facebook then acquired the company for $1 billion. And so they, they had kind of a a weird twist with their their funding rounds as well as the the ultimate acquisition by Facebook I think only about 18 months after they'd found it. Yeah, I think those were the key players that I noted kind of as Silicon Valley mentors in this. One element though of mentors is that celebrities actually really played a role in this and I I think we'll probably get into the how Instagram gave rise to celebrities and such but I also saw some of the celebrities like Ashton Kutcher and Snoop Dogg and Justin Bieber that are mentioned multiple times throughout the book, giving direct feedback to Systrom on what they need from Instagram and really helping him shape it, that I saw them kind of playing roles as mentors for Instagram as well. Yeah, and we can't forget the Kardashians. The Kardashians had a straight phone number into the head of Instagram, so they were able to make sure they got the best photos. So they had these really incredible investors. In fact, David, with that anecdote, right, they doubled their money within a week of investing. It's pretty crazy. They also had an ongoing conversation with Facebook about being acquired. And you mentioned how it eventually led to an acquisition. Why did they end up selling to Facebook? And what was their growth like at the time that they sold to Facebook? So did they have realistic expectations that they could continue to grow? The, as much as they were, how much had they grown already? And what was the reason for selling? Yeah, so I think that the app was growing like crazy. I think they had about 30 million users when they got acquired by Facebook. And so the, the $1 billion valuation did seem you know crazy to people at the time, although I think Facebook's stock ended up crashing. And so by the time the deal actually closed, it was, it was more like 700 million. And I, I think, again, the, the stock crashed a little bit after that. You know, long term, it ended up being obviously a lot more than that too, because the Facebook stock went up over time as well. But the real problem I think they were suffering from was just scale. So they literally had 13 employees when the acquisition was completed with 30 million users. 
And so I really think that Instagram had not really built themselves to be able to handle like the, com- the really crazy rapid growth that was, was starting to pile on as they got all of these celebrities and influencers to, to take onto the platform. And that then led to even more, you know, average individuals joining the ultimate requirements for just being able to scale, they, they were able to take advantage a lot of the, the Facebook resources. And so when they did hit a billion users, I know Mark Zuckerberg claimed that he believed Instagram had gotten there twice as fast as a result of Facebook's support. I think a lot of Instagram people took some umbrage with that because how could you possibly know how, how much more quickly we would have gotten there? But definitely was a big factor in their ability to grow, being able to integrate into Facebook, being able to see, you know, your Facebook friends who were on Instagram. And frankly, from the start, they had really leveraged other platforms, Twitter and Facebook, in order to grow their own network. So Instagram was very well suited to be able to like cross post your photos to Twitter, to uh, Facebook. I'm sure there were, you know, other other integrations that they had as well. And so, you know, they, they always did leverage sort of other networks with larger scale in order to, to drive the funnel back into Instagram more. Yeah, I think it's worth explaining a little bit that this was a decision that was made over the course of a weekend, it seems, and an alcohol-fueled weekend a bit at that. You know, the, the timelines in the book, I think it says, like, at the beginning of 2012, Twitter made an offer to acquire Instagram at 500 to 700 million dollars worth of Twitter stock, which was essentially only 12 months after Instagram had been founded, right? So it had a phenomenal growth in that time and more so that I guess people believed that it would continue growing um, and be a true competitor to both Facebook and Instagram. I think the book goes into a little bit of it's debated if Twitter actually offered Systrom a term sheet, because I think he would have been required to share that with his board, which he didn't. So he just turned down the offer. And then they felt the Twitter team felt pretty rebuffed a few months later when in April 2012, they announced the Facebook acquisition for a billion dollars. And it seems like it really all came together over the course of a weekend with pulling together, you know, the BD team at Facebook and the general counsel at both companies, all at Zuckerberg's house and kind of running back and forth between the houses to get the deal, terms of the deal together. And then on Monday morning, Systrom called everybody, all everybody being all 13 Instagram employees to the office early on to announce the acquisition. And then they kind of bust over to the Facebook offices that day. And, you know, it took a few months uh, for the acquisition to go through. But it was very sudden, and I don't think that there was much expectation from the board that that was what was going to be happening. And then there was debate afterwards if Systrom was supposed to have brought the board in earlier, told the board about the Twitter offer and such, whereas he kind of unilaterally made the decision. Yeah, and it's actually even more interesting. He testified under oath that he did not receive a formal term sheet from Twitter. And so the Twitter, you know, legal counsel and whatnot dis- dispute that. So that that is like a, a question on the public record as to whether or not Twitter actually formally offered money or it was just a conversation. Alcohol fueled seemed to have been the case in, in that that uh, situation as well. They, they mentioned that Systrom was drinking a lot of bourbon at the time, so maybe he genuinely didn't remember if he was presented with the term sheet. That is not something that they, they bring up in the book, but just something I'm speculating on. But that whole history was something I didn't know very much about. And so that, that, that part I found really interesting, how quickly the, the Facebook deal came together and also the fact that Twitter had been courting them you know, not that long beforehand. And again, to Eli's point, 
I believe Kevin did, uh, similar to Mark, have sort of a controlling interest in the company. So whether or not he was like actually required to bring it to the board, I think is is probably open to to debate to some degree. But uh, certainly the board number members felt like they should have been consulted, and I think some of them were quite upset by the sale. They you know they had just raised fifty million dollars from Sequoia. They certainly had you know a very long amount of runway with only thirteen employees and fifty million dollars in the bank, and so you know ultimately. Obviously, Instagram is now worth probably, you know, $100 billion on its own. And so, you know, a lot of those board members do feel like, you know, Kevin made the wrong call. They, they should have stayed independent and, you know, grown the company without, without Facebook. And I think it's worth mentioning that all of this is happening pre-revenue. And in fact, even a couple years after the Facebook acquisition, they still weren't running ads. It took them two or three years to start running ads. So this is a company that has no revenue. And at the same time, we're in an era when it's more about how many users you have and how much growth you have than it is about how much money you're actually making. I think it's also worth mentioning that actually Systrom already knew Mark Zuckerberg. So Systrom and Mark Zuckerberg actually went back several years at this point. I think they said 2005 or 2006, he interviewed for a job at Facebook. He meets Zuckerberg in a restaurant and Zuckerberg credit card gets declined. He's just kind of like starting up Facebook. And then Systrom went to talk to a mentor of his from college. And he's like, you know, uh, uh, should I do this Facebook thing? And the mentor's like, nah, I don't think that's really going to work out. And it's not a good sign. The credit card was declined. So yeah, don't do it. But the reason I bring up this story is you mentioned how he knows Dorsey. We know that he knows Zuckerberg. He's kind of like the ultimate tech bro. And he meets like Mark Andreessen at a party. And they're all, they're all like getting together and wanting to buy his company or invest in his company. And I have to say, he's a great networker. He's able to leverage those relationships, perhaps, into potential acquisitions. It's not clear to me that necessarily at this point, Instagram was the best product. It might have been that it, he had the best networking capability, which is very appropriate for somebody who's the head of a social network. I think the filters were a big element of setting it apart from the other competing pictorial social networks at the time. Anyway, so there were these other social networks. I think it had a lot to do with the filters and also their strategy that you mentioned earlier of piggybacking off of Facebook and Twitter. Basically, you'd post your Instagram photos on a Facebook or Twitter and they would take you to Instagram. And there was kind of like a deep linking there. Is there anything else that really set Instagram apart from the competitors that were around at the time? Yeah, I think I think filters was really big and the constraints of, you know, it just looked clean. One story that uh, we didn't dive much into, but Systrom, when he turned down that Facebook offer, ended up spending the term studying photography in Florence. And he bought a really nice camera when he went there uh, and was like very excited with it. And his professor took the camera away from him and gave him this old, it was called Holga camera, which I, I don't necessarily know what that is, but it, he said that it took small, blurry black and white pictures. And that was all that he was allowed to use for that term studying photography in Florence. And so Systrom from that experience just learned that there's something actually beautiful when you strip away all the pizzazz and really just focus on the basics. So I think that was one element of Instagram was the very simple aesthetics of you kind of see one picture at a time in the feed, they are all going to be square and encouraging people to work in those constraints. 
And then certainly Copac, you know, they talked about filters a lot. There were apps at the time that let you filter photographs, and but you would have to go onto one app to use the filter and then you upload it separately onto Facebook. Or there were apps, they said, where you could, there was a filter within the photo sharing app, but it didn't actually show you what it would look like with the filter until you posted it, which seems like just a really silly thing that can can easily be fixed. And then there were others that uh, were not as mobile native. Uh, so they were built on a website and then we're building something for an app. So yeah, I mean, as I think back to it, I didn't actually use any of these other apps that they talk about in the book. You know, I was not in like the user base number a thousand for any of these things, but it seems like Kevin was really focused on aesthetics. And I do agree with that, you know, as I am an Instagram user, it is just a clean app, right? Like, and you compare the Instagram app to the Facebook app, which just is like information overload and so many red flags coming up saying like, oh, you need to check this, you need to check this. Uh, the Instagram one is really clean. So in term, in terms of the app, I think that's what set it apart was that it was designed by somebody who cares about design. The other thing that I, I think really gave rise to it was driven by celebrities. Right, so they they do talk a lot in the book about celebrities, but especially celebrities early on. So Snoop Dogg and Justin Bieber, who kind of joined Instagram without any courting, right? Like they just they heard about it. It was a cool thing, so they started using it, and then they would post pictures on Instagram, share them to their uh, Twitter followers. Twitter had spent a lot of time courting celebrities, right, and encouraging them to use Twitter, explaining how to use Twitter and such to the celebrities. So then they were used to social media. They started using Instagram because it was easier to share pictures. They would post it onto Twitter and then everybody would come over to Instagram. So they talk in the book, especially when Justin Bieber started using it, that it would take down the servers and suddenly Instagram was emoji heaven and these kind of college bros had to figure out how to court teenage girls on the app and how to make it a good app for them. And I think that that's really one thing that gave rise to it. I think the relationship with the celebrities is a really interesting part of all of this because they really developed those relationships in a way that I don't think the other social media platforms did quite as much. I guess Twitter did to some extent for sure. And I think they talked about sort of Ashton Kutcher being a, a big proponent of Twitter and, you know, getting other celebrities into it. And they kind of followed along that path. But uh, as Kopeck mentioned before, Kevin like gave out his phone number to some of like the biggest Instagram influencers for a while. And they really were actively going after these people. And then not only that, because celebrities were the biggest users by talking to them a lot, they actually made real product changes as a result of the feedback that they got from those celebrities. So one example that they talked about was that. Taylor Swift was getting cyberbullied about being a snake. And so, you know, that people would do like snake emojis and hiss and call her a snake whenever she posted anything. And so they actually developed like an algorithmic way to filter comments like based on particular keywords and things like that, specifically to help Taylor Swift solve that problem. But then they did open that up to others as well. So they built it to solve her problem. But then, you know, many other people with large followings were also struggling with how to deal with the comments. And so, you know, later on, they added the sort of algorithm impacting which comments displayed. So if it was someone that you interacted with a lot, or it was a verified user, those kinds of comments would, would go higher up in the feed and make it a little bit easier for the, the influencers to see each other. And the fact that they were engaging with each other and be able to respond to those 
without being overwhelmed with the thousands of other messages that might have been coming through. But I, I thought that dynamic of of really, you know, focusing on those those power users, celebrities, and influencers was pretty different from what I think happened on you know Facebook and other and other platforms. Yeah, just being a user of it, I don't think that you appreciate. Uh, how much actual like strategy and work went into that? You know, they they talk about getting Obama on it, about getting the Pope on it, and like how how big of a deal that was. I, I will say, I was actually distracted frequently while reading this book because they would talk about an Instagram account like such as the Pope, and then I would go and check it out, <laughs> and then and then find myself down an Instagram rabbit hole. Really, unfortunately, which is one of one of the issues with social media. I feel like that was one big gap in this book is just they really should have had the photos and I'm sure they just don't have the rights to it and all that. And that's that's why they didn't do it. But it, yeah, I, I, I agree, Eli, especially after you mentioned that you were doing that. I, I started doing it as well. And it really would have been nice to just see, you know, the photos that they're talking about as opposed to just describing them. Yeah, I was surprised I didn't have the photos too. I was reading it on my like very old Kindle. So I thought maybe it was just because I was on my Kindle. Uh, but then yeah, I kind of went on to the Kindle version online and saw there were there were no photos. And also my complaint about a feature that does not exist on Instagram since doing this with the book is that you can't kind of do a reverse chronological sorting of the pictures. So if you want to go and like see what was the first picture that Jack Dorsey posted, you have to like go scroll through his entire timeline. Unless I'm an idiot there. I don't know. I did scroll through to see his first photo. And I also scrolled through to see Kevin Systrom's first photo. And I think one interesting part of all of this is kind of the personal dynamics between the three of them. And if you take the time to go see their their photos and kind of when they stopped posting photos, you get a little bit of a sense of that. So they get bought by Facebook. And right away, there's a little bit of conflict. And that conflict only grows over the course of the next 10 years. What were the issues between Instagram inside of Facebook and Facebook's management? My goodness, so many. I think the... Two key issues that I would boil it down to is one, what were the incentives and what were the metrics that each company cared about? And two, how curated did they want to be? So in terms of the metrics, Facebook was is entirely driven by monthly active users and time spent in the app. So that is how every product team at Facebook is incentivized. And you can feel that as a Facebook user, right? Like they are all about sending emails of like, so-and-so tagged you in a picture, such and such event is coming up there. It's like so-and-so's birthday today of like, essentially each product team is trying to get, pull you back to the app. And then when you go into the app, there's a bunch of little red alerts all over the app. Um, And it's just different product teams that are all being incentivized to try and keep you on the app as long as possible. Whereas at Instagram, what they cared about, they coined it as uh, engaged users, I think. So they cared more about people posting pictures. So what got people to engage with the app, not just go and scroll through and look at celebrity pictures, but post their own pictures, um, be that within their uh, actual, I guess, newsfeed or within Instagram stories, which they you know later developed to compete with Snapchat. So so that was the first thing that I think was really different was just like, which metrics were they being incentivized by? And then second was that Facebook, and I guess Twitter as well, really prided itself on 
being fully open. They don't curate. Uh, they don't police really much on the platform. Whereas Instagram actually did want to curate the platform. And, you know, Systrom cares about aesthetics. He wanted this to be a place where people were sharing beautiful pictures and such. And they wanted to use, you know, the at Instagram handle and the, uh, I guess, search page, I forget what it's called, but like to encourage good behavior. So they like went and found what are those really beautiful accounts that we want to highlight here. And that's just not something that was really done at Facebook either. They were just kind of encouraged anybody to use the app in any way that they wanted to. But those were, those were just the start. There were tons of issues, I think, uh, with that acquisition. Yeah, I think Facebook always wanted to do things that can scale and Instagram wanted to create this like perfect, simple, beautiful experience. And so they really just were quite different cultures. And I think it ultimately at the beginning went fairly well. Like Zuckerberg was actually very hands off. He didn't encourage them to do advertise. He actually discouraged them from doing advertising for a while. I think it was maybe two or three years after they were acquired before they actually started adding um, advertising to the feed. And so, you know, they were given some freedom as long as they kept growing. But, you know, over time, the conflict became between whether or not it should be, you know, Facebook and these separate apps, and they're all, you know, focused in their own way on growing their users, which might be quite distinct, versus Mark Zuckerberg started to have a feeling that, no, we needed to create this family of apps that are all interconnected. They all link into each other. They drive growth across the, the whole platform. And so rather than having Instagram have a lot of independence, he wanted there to be, you know, prominent links back into Facebook. He wanted, you know, ultimately after uh, Kevin and Mike left, they actually did add, you know, Facebook branding to all of the apps. So it does say, you know, Instagram from Facebook or whatever it is that the, you know, that, that rebranding was around. And so like that dynamic, I think was, was the one that really drove Kevin and Mike away from the company in the long term was the focus on. Facebook and the whole parent company, as opposed to, hey, Instagram's growing like crazy. We're like, we're more of your advertising than, you know, anything else other than Facebook itself. Like we're growing much more rapidly than you are. Maybe we're doing something right versus uh, Mark saying, oh, but, you know, maybe you're cannibalizing Facebook's growth and maybe Facebook would be doing better if, you know, we didn't have, you know, Instagram to compete with. And also, frankly, how much of Instagram's growth was driven by Facebook, which which probably was a fair point that, you know, Facebook did drive a lot of traffic to there. I think shortly before they left, Mark did start to actually crack down and, um, you know, stopped giving free advertising to Instagram on the Facebook newsfeed that would say, you know, oh, you've got, you know, 100, you know, Facebook friends that are on Instagram. Why don't you go join Instagram and, you know, see what they're up to? Those dynamics, I think, changed over time to where Mark was really focused on the bottom line for Facebook. And frankly, he wanted Facebook to keep growing as it started to struggle versus, you know, Kevin was obviously going to care a lot more about Instagram. Yeah. And I think you see that in kind of popular media as well, right? Like when Facebook was facing all the backlash from the 2016 elections and, you know, various other challenges that they've had over the years, even though Instagram has actually been involved in this. And honestly, something that I learned from the book was that Instagram spread more misinformation during the 2016 election campaign than Facebook did. They said in the book, it seems like everyone still loves Instagram and they just hate Facebook. And they, you know, like to think of them as different apps. And <laughs> um, the, the other thing that I'm laughing about that I felt like was said in the book a few times was that Zuckerberg 
realized that he could program anything and he could build anything, but he failed at making it cool. Whereas Instagram made things cool. Um, and it seems like there was just a lot of tension between the two founders uh, because of elements like that. But yeah, I mean, so two, two things. I think that Facebook definitely helped Instagram grow. They had 13 employees. They were way, way understaffed. Kevin Systrom was not hiring people. He was being entirely picky about hiring people, as picky as he seemed to be about the aesthetics of the app. So that that's something where it's like, I think they did need Facebook to help scale. And I'm not sure if they would have been as successful without it. Of course, there's the debate about if Facebook really did help them uh, get to a billion users twice as fast or something. I actually forget the second point I was going to say. <laughs> well, let me jump in. So Facebook, when they purchased Instagram, they promised Kevin and Mike that you're really going to stay pretty independent and we're going to let you kind of do your own thing and keep growing the app. And in fact, they even used them as kind of the poster children for Facebook acquisitions. They used them as talking points to the founders of Oculus VR and the founders of WhatsApp when they did those acquisitions. And they'd have Kevin call up those CEOs and say, hey, you know, when you get bought by Facebook, they're really going to leave you alone. And that helped convince the WhatsApp founders and the Oculus VR founders that, yeah, this will be okay for us. We can go and keep doing our thing, but be part of the Facebook family, quote unquote. The reality is, of course, that over time, when the objectives of Facebook needed Instagram to change, that independence started to go away. And I think there's a good lesson here that when you sell your company, you're really selling your company and you're giving up control. There's no such thing. And this is really a point the book makes as being a CEO within a company that has a CEO, uh, unless there's some kind of legal structure in place to, to prevent the person who's a CEO of the parent company from really dictating to you you're really not fully in control. Yeah. So I, I think it's worth noting that, uh, I forget his name, the person who reported Systrom is not called the CEO of Instagram, uh, although Systrom kept that title throughout. But it seemed like Systrom didn't even report directly to Zuckerberg. Did you guys understand that in the book, what that reporting structure was? Yeah. No, he didn't report directly to Zuckerberg. He had, it seemed at first he had more of a close relationship with him. And it seemed, you know, of course, they went back years at that point. And they would have regular chats and they, were, it's, they mentioned even dinners that they'd have together. And then over time, it got more and more distant and there was a layer of management between them. Yeah. So I think when the acquisition completed, he did report straight into Zuckerberg. And then a few years before he left, there was a reshuffle around this idea of like the, the family, the Facebook family of apps. And so Chris Cox, who I think had been the head of product at Facebook, became the head of product across all of the uh, various apps. And so the heads of you know WhatsApp and Instagram and Oculus and whatnot reported into Chris Cox, who, who reported to, to Zuck. I want to take us on a little bit of a side story. There's the whole Snapchat versus Instagram thing and Instagram copying Snapchat stories. I don't even know what it's called in Snapchat. Is it also called stories? And that was a major point. But when we look back on it, I, I don't really see it as a big point. But at the time, it was a big issue. I remember the tech press really getting all up in arms about it. I have two questions for you. First of all, do you think it's legitimate to go and copy another app's features almost exactly? And number two, do you think that this was something that was a major factor for the continued growth of Instagram? Was this like a really important move that they made copying this feature from Snapchat? I think that's a good question about, is it legitimate? It's infuriating, certainly, but I think there's nothing preventing that from happening, right? 
Like there's, there's no copyright or such on the features, is there? Well, from a computing perspective, you can copyright source code and you can patent certain kinds of ideas in software, which is a controversial thing, by the way. Some countries don't allow software patents. But you can't, if it's something basic, like the idea of a button, let's say, or the idea of a recorded video that other people can see, obviously you can't patent that. And since they're not using each other's source code, there's no copyright infringement either. So I don't really see any legal issues here at all. Yeah, I think this actually sounds like it's the source question in the movie, The, the Social Network, right? About did, uh, did Zuckerberg steal the idea of Facebook originally from the Winklevoss twins because they gave him the idea and he says, well, I didn't use any of the same source code because I guess that's the point, Kopech, right? Yeah, I think it's it's not cool, right? That's the, that's the part. And so it kind of comes back to that, that I don't think it's illegal. And I th- actually think the argument that these like expiring video messages are just a new kind of message, like a text message or an email or a letter or whatever, that like no one has like fundamental control over over that is like, it's a it's a decent enough point. But it was just such a like clear point by point ripoff of Snapchat that it did not feel cool when it happened. It was just like, oh, really? But to be honest, I definitely have stopped using Snapchat. And I do think that was part of it, even though I don't really use Instagram stories either. So I I think I just kind of got overwhelmed with having too many different apps. And frankly, it was probably starting to use Twitter that really diverted me away from from frankly, Facebook, Instagram and Snapchat, although I do still use Instagram and Facebook just much, much less. I actually just look back at my feed. I haven't posted an Instagram in a year and a half. And I haven't posted a Facebook message since my birthday. So like six months. So in both cases, I have definitely dramatically decreased my usage. I love how behind the times all of us are as Twitter users now. <laughs> I feel like we're like, oh, have you heard of this like cool new app, Twitter? Yeah. In, in terms of was it necessary for Instagram's growth? As a user of Instagram, but not somebody who really understood why certain decisions were made, it was interesting in the book to learn more about this, right? That they were doing all of this research with teenagers to understand how they were using Instagram. And there was this pressure that the teenagers were talking about, right? That they needed to make sure that their picture got at least 11 likes because that's when it started counting the numbers rather than saying exactly who liked it. And if it didn't get that within an hour, then they would delete it. And then there's like all this pressure on people have to comment. And if you don't comment quickly enough or respond to comments and right. So this like real pressure of using Instagram and everything needs to appear perfect. You need to filter it. So you're just not going to post all that much on it. Whereas Snapchat introduces place where teenagers felt that they could be more open and honest about their lives and post like real pictures about what's going on during their day. And there's so much less pressure with it. And they saw that they were losing teens to that, which makes so much sense to read it, but wasn't something that I really appreciated, like that that was what was going on. It was teens were under pressure on Instagram. So they started using Snapchat. So then Instagram stories was obviously a legitimate competitor because it was essentially the same product to Snapchat. I would say I personally, I use Snapchat quite a bit. And then I stopped using it the day that they reordered the newsfeed and started introducing ads. I was just like, oh, I, I like can't deal with this anymore. And I just, I deleted it that day. And by that point, Instagram already had Instagram stories and disappearing pictures and DMs. So it felt like everything that you could get from Snapchat, you could, you could get on Instagram. So I didn't lose anything by deleting it at that point. 
And I'll just add about reusing features or re-implementing features that, that have already existed in other software. It's critical to the software industry. I mean, can we imagine if there was only one word processor or one operating system or one spreadsheet program? We have to have these ideas be reused so we can have some competition. And so I think it's very important that, that we don't look down too much on companies that reuse other companies' ideas and maybe improve on them a little bit or give them their own twist as long as they're not literally stealing source code or infringing on someone's patents. And I'm not even sure I agree with software patents, which is a controversial issue. Let's go into, actually, I have a great quote for this. So Pablo Picasso said, good artists copy, great artists steal. And believe it or not, that was one of Steve Jobs' favorite quotes. So that's a pretty authoritative figure on the issue. So let's go into some of the social issues that Instagram faced as it continued to grow, it certainly had a big effect on society. We've seen, you just mentioned Eli teens and their use of Instagram and how that's kind of affected mental health for some people. And we've also seen people actually become career Instagram users. We call them influencers, right? And there's some debate about whether or not that's been a positive thing. So what are some of the challenges Instagram has faced from a cultural perspective and from society writ large? So I would say the the advertising piece was one that that I found kind of interesting and just like the the history of influencers and how, you know, at first it was something that sort of Instagram didn't really like, but they didn't do anything to stop it. And then ultimately, you know, the the I forget which arm of the federal government stepped in. I think it's the FTC and said like, "Hey, you you do actually have to indicate that these things are sponsored, that you are being paid or you are receiving goods for free in exchange for these messages. You can't just act as if you just happen to be wearing this um, dress. And um, so I guess I think there was like a, a Lord and Taylor campaign where they had like 15 different influencers all wear the same dress and post it on the same weekend. And that was when the FTC was finally like, okay, like this is clearly an advertising campaign. No one knows that. And that is, you know, misleading to um, consumers. And so you do need to to actually, you know, add prominent tagging that says that this is sponsored. And so Instagram did add tools to be able to do that. And they did, I believe, require that people use them, but then they they didn't actually do anything to enforce it. And it seemed like that was kind of like a, a theme that we keep hearing about uh, in the book was that they just never felt like they had the resources to do the things to like actually solve some of the community problems as they started to get really big. And so sure, they like added tools so that people could indicate that this was a sponsored post and, you know, it would be prominent and very clear to people. And you certainly do see, you know, those things in your feed, which are set up that way. But then influencers didn't think that was cool. And so a lot of them just continued to ignore it until, you know, they actually got cease and desist letters from the government or something along those lines. And I'm sure then they, then they started to take action, but that the vast majority of sponsored content, even after Instagram developed tools for it was still not being, you know, adequately indicated to the customers. So I would say that's, that's one part of the like, influencer culture stuff that I found really interesting. Yeah, Kopeg, I think we should come back to this point on the impact of society at large, but to dive a little deeper on the influencer culture quickly, one thing that just like bothered me from a like business case perspective with this is how much money Instagram is giving away to the ads that are like being put on Instagram that they don't make money on, right? So obviously they have sponsored content that they are paid for. But then the fact that all of these influencers and all of these celebrities are posting ads on Instagram and using it as a platform to post ads without 
any money fan channeling through Instagram was not addressed in the book. And that just feels like a huge loss, I, like purely from a business case standpoint, not, not something that I like as a user really want them getting into. Maybe that's why they haven't. But I, I'm just like surprised that, you know, for that Lord and Taylor dress campaign, right? Like they didn't try and set up a way that Lord and Taylor can contact influencers and pay influencers through the app so that when they post the dress, they are paid then and then Instagram can take a cut of it. I don't know. Is that something that either of you like thought about as they were just talking about like kind of how much money some influencers make on the app and just none of that flows through Instagram? I, I did think about it. And I actually just, I don't know enough about the model. I feel like they didn't go into too much depth on how exactly like what is an ad that's being paid for. I guess it's just whether or not you followed someone. So like if something gets introduced into your feed where you didn't follow them, then that's something where someone did have to pay, you know, Facebook, Instagram in order to get that into your feed, as opposed to if you happen to follow an influencer and they do post something that's like sponsored content, that will still end up in your feed without the advertiser needing to pay Instagram. It's just that they're paying the the influencer directly. I think that's the way it works. Does that sound right? Yeah, that's my impression of how it works. So it just feels like Instagram kind of isn't capitalizing on all of that money that's going direct to it, uh, to the influencers. I want to just point out something in the book that I found troubling in the introduction. And I'm wondering if this also was troubling to you. It says, and I'm quoting here from page 17 in the intro. So this is like pre-pages. More than 200 million of Instagram's users have more than 50,000 followers. The level at which they can make a living wage by posting on behalf of brands, according to the influencer analysis company Dovetail. I don't think that's possible. Like, I, I don't think that I don't think that's true, and I also don't think that's possible. I don't think that 200 million of Instagram's users that would be like one out of every six users, or they have like 1.2 billion users or something, has 50,000 followers. Right? That's not right, right? <laughs> that doesn't sound right for my like 200 or so followers. Yeah. And I, I mean, if I think of like who I follow, I don't think like one in six of them have that many followers. I don't know. 200 million is a lot of people. I feel like I'm supposed to have a faster answer here since I'm a management consultant, but that that does seem like unrealistically high. Yeah. It doesn't feel right, but it does seem possible, I would say, which is just that like, we probably don't follow the influencer groups nearly as much. And so we're probably like, we just get them less into our feed because we probably followed a lot of like actual people that we know. And then, you know, whatever. I, I do follow a fair amount of like photography things. And like most of those do have, you know, 50, 100,000, a million you know, plus uh, followers. So, you know, you do see that. And I feel like it's just like, it does seem like a lot for like one in six users to have 50,000 plus followers though. That, that does seem extreme. I think there's no way. And so I hate when I see things like that in a book, because then it makes me question the authenticity of the entire narrative in the book, which is one of my problems with this book as a whole. So this book is written in a certain kind of style that's in vogue in business books right now, which is the author had access to a lot of the key players and a lot of the employees under them, interviewed all of them, but then doesn't put any citations or notes about what part of the book came from what interviews. And two other books like this are Hatching Twitter and Console Wars, which are were very popular business books when they came out a few years ago. I think it's problematic for history because then you don't know if a certain anecdote is coming from a certain person's bias. 
And I also think it's problematic because you can't go back and then verify what's being said. So if I'm a historian later looking on at the impact of Instagram on society, let's say 10 or 20 years from now, right? I can't go and say, oh, well, this person said this thing that led to this point in the book and then reach out to them or talk to people that they knew, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it makes the book a very poor historical document. And I think it's okay if it makes the narrative really, really great. And I'm sure we'll talk about this at the end, but I, I personally didn't find the narrative so compelling that it was worth using the style. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. And frankly, there are parts like like what you just read. And I feel like there was something like towards the very end where this is like, she's clearly quoting from some like research and she still doesn't like say specifically where it came from for the most part. Like at one point she does like say a McKinsey study or something like that, but like still like doesn't actually cite the source again. Maybe there, there are a lot of end notes and stuff. So, so maybe some of it is in there, but I did really find it frustrating that you could tell like some of this was clearly from Kevin Systrom's perspective. Right. And like, they do not say that, but like, who else could have had like this opinion about like the way that something went down? Like it had to have been Kevin who like presented this argument to her. And you just don't even know, like, all right, well, did she actually talk to the other people that were in the room to get like confirmation that that happened? Or did she just trust Kevin's opinion on like what it is that happened? And I, I yeah, I agree. It's, it's something that I struggle with in, in these types of books. Like I, I did learn some stuff from this book and I, I did enjoy it. It was like a, you know, an interesting read. But I really do wish that there was a little bit better uh, citations to understand who is it that told her that this is what happened and was there independent verification of everything. And or, yeah, at least giving that right. If you only heard this from one source, at least tell us that even if you're not going to tell us who the source is. Wait, did she say that she interviewed Kevin Systrom for the book? Because that, that was that was one of my questions was like, I, I know at the beginning she kind of said, I'm not going to tell you who I interviewed because everyone had to, has to sign NDAs, but I interviewed a whole lot of people. And then she kind of dives into it. And it I certainly felt at many times that it was coming from Kevin Systrom's perspective. So that was one of my questions is if you guys thought she interviewed Kevin Systrom, but maybe I completely glossed over the part where she says that she did. Yeah, I'm I'm not sure. It, it, she might not explicitly say it. Um, there's no way that like these stories could have come from anyone else, though. Like some of them. So like I feel like yeah. it had to have it had to have been, even if she doesn't yeah, acknowledge it, it. It felt like a pretty veiled attempt at like saying, like, you know, Kevin Systrom and Mark Zuckerberg had this conversation, aka the only people who know what happened were Kevin Systrom and Mark Zuckerberg. And we're pretty sure that Zuckerberg was not the one that was interviewed. I'm just gonna quote from the author's note at the beginning about this. So Facebook Incorporated offered more than two dozen sit-down interviews with current staff and executives, including the current head of Instagram, even after the founders departed their company. And then later on, it also, here's a bit of the justification, and she's talking about like why she uses anonymous style. For that reason, most of my sources provided their interviews, documents, and other materials only anonymously. That context is important for understanding why I wrote the book the way I did, in a narrative style presenting the story through an omniscient perspective that incorporates all these different memories. So I do not directly say who told me what information in order to protect my sources. And then she also mentions later on in that that she didn't get an interview with Zuckerberg. So, I mean, Zuckerberg is presented in somewhat of a negative light, and we're not getting his perspective. And I, I think that's a, a fair thing to, to mention. I'll also mention, I, I always read acknowledgments when I read books. And at the end of it, she gives a thank you to the authors of Console Wars and Hatching Twitter. So she was definitely influenced by that style from those earlier business books, I think. Okay, uh, moving on from this. So Kevin Systrom is 
probably the only character that we really get to know very well throughout the book. I'm wondering what kind of impression you got of him. Is he somebody that you'd want to work for? Wow, that's a really good question. I think that I would because of like how successful Instagram was and like his intense vision. Like, I don't know that it would be the most pleasant job to have, but I think it would be really fascinating to work with with Kevin Systrom. I, I think I would learn a lot from that. Yeah, he certainly seems adamant about his own personal vision. And clearly, yeah, I agree with Short, given the success of Instagram, there is something to be said for Kevin Systrom's vision that it resonates with a whole lot of people. One thing in the book that we didn't mention was when Instagram was acquired and it had 13 employees, I think only three of them had been at Instagram long enough to have equity. So they had to have been there for a year and it was acquired when it was only like 16 months or something old. So most of the employees had been there for less than a year. So none of the employees got Facebook equity in the acquisition. Um, The three that had been there for more than a year were given the option to buy in Facebook equity at some discounted rate I didn't fully understand. And at least one of them didn't because he would have had to take out a loan. And, you know, his financial advisor advised him against it, which made sense at the time because Facebook stock did plummet initially. And, you know, the, the author does say, as a side note at that point, that many other startups at that point of acquisition, the founders might give a million dollars or something to each of the various uh, employees, even if they didn't qualify for equity. And it seems like that thought didn't even pass through Kevin Systrom's mind, right? Like all the employees were having the conversation of like, oh, like what does this billion dollar acquisition mean for us? And it really meant that they like now had jobs at Facebook. That that's something, you know, we read Stephanie Shirley's book this year, right? Like, I don't think that that's what she would have done in that situation. And I, I don't think that enough time was spent in the book kind of really examining that to see, was that acting out of selfishness? Was that like unique to Kevin Systrom? Or was that actually what was being done at the time? So th- that was probably the key thing in the book that left me with bad feelings about what it would be like to work with him. Yeah, it kind of made me think back to Microsoft and some of the the craziness with the equity there. Um, I think that was a little bit more extreme where um, I believe Bill Gates and um, Paul Allen. Well, no, but Bill Gates and Ballmer were like colluding to cut Paul Allen out while he was like suffering from cancer. And he happened to like barge in the room and stop them. So they didn't actually do it, but they were trying to like dilute him in sort of a, a you know, Eduardo Saverin Facebook style way. And so like, it does seem like a lot of these companies have like weird, you know, very intense founders who value money over, you know, friendship and things like that. And so like the, the antithesis to that, I think is, um, is Waz at, at Apple who, you know, did I was give, about to bring that up. I'm glad you brought it up. Yeah. He, who did give, um, you know, equity away to a lot of the other early people once he found out that they weren't going to get it directly from, uh, from Steve and from Apple. Um, so, you know, there are, there certainly are people that, that do write by the, the early employees when, you know, the contracts might not all, you know, play out. So like, yeah, I, d- I don't blame Kevin Systrom for like people hadn't been there for a year, so they hadn't earned the equity. But I think, you know, he's a billionaire now. And I'm sure that all of those people, you know, if they stayed at Facebook for a while, they probably did get Facebook equity as a result of working there. You know, over time, Facebook does, you know, grant stock options and things like that. But yeah, it, you, you would think that like, especially with such a small founding team that you could have given something to people. I mean, again, it doesn't need to be a million dollars even, but like, it seemed like all they did, like they, they like 
went on like one big trip or something like that. And that was like the extent of what happened is like that. Plus now you work at Facebook where, hey, maybe, maybe you got equity through your, your Facebook negotiation, but you definitely didn't get anything from the fact that you, you know, been part of growing Instagram to 30 million users. Yeah. I mean, but one thing to keep in mind is that when Wozniak gave that stock away, Apple had already existed for like five years. I think he gave it to the 100 earliest employees and he gave it out of his own personal stock, as he mentioned. Now, Instagram had only been around for like two years when it was acquired. And a lot of the employees had only been working there for a few months. So to be fair, it is a pretty different situation. That said, if I were Systrom, I like to think I definitely would have given some of my own share to those employees. Just like, hey, I won the lottery. Maybe I'm going to let you win the lottery too, because I happen to be in the right place in the right time and you were too. So yeah, I thought that was lame. I also thought that Systrom, the book described him as becoming precious, uh, or maybe that was it describing how other people described him. That's the word that I was thinking of. And then the book used it. He became more and more precious as Instagram went on. I think the money went to his head. At the beginning of the book, I felt like I could kind of relate to him because he was somebody who was into software development, but didn't get a degree in it in undergrad and then got more into it after undergrad. And we were in the same fraternity. And I thought, you know, there were some things that we worldview things that we had in common. And then he just becomes like more and more particular as the book goes on, not just about the app, which might have been one of his superpowers in managing the app that he was very particular, like both of you have said, about limiting what features and what clutter makes it into the app. But he also became very particular in his personal life. And he seems like he was kind of annoying, actually. I mean, life is short and to spend so much of your life trying to get the perfect brew of coffee or the exact perfect bike model or the exact perfect bourbon like it's uh I don't know. It's not how I would spend my time. It's he's definitely not somebody as he got rich that I would want to hang out with. Getting rid of the trash cans in the office was the most ridiculous statement of all of that. I like yeah, I would have really gone crazy if my manager <laughs> had ever done that. Short short for the for the sake of our listeners, you want to explain that one? I mean, there's not really much to explain, but basically he, I think it was like the Kardashians were going to come over or something. And so he was just like, this place needs to look like Instagram feels like we can't just look like we're part of Facebook. We got to have our own, you know, good aesthetic. And so he like ripped the Facebook rules off of the wall. He like got rid of everyone's trash cans. And I forget, he like set up a like space that was very Instagrammable. Um, and so, yeah, like try to sort of like remodel the offices in this like very clean, you know, aesthetically pleasing way. And then they, they tell an anecdote that apparently he would go on vacations, though, and then like he was like a, buying packages online all the time. And so his packages would just like stack up outside of his office. So like, oh, he's saying everything needs to be perfect. But then like he's got this pile of boxes because he's like so obsessed with all this like materialistic stuff. So when the acquisition takes place between Facebook and Instagram, Zuckerberg and Systrom are almost kind of bro-y. They go skiing together. And as we've talked about, it deteriorates over time. Do you think the deterioration was personal or was it all business? Yeah, that, that's a good question. Because what I, I guess they're also kind of the same age. In It, it was hard. And I, I think, Kopech, you've, you've made a good point that Zuckerberg was not interviewed for this book. So it's hard, you know, hearing things kind of more from the Instagram perspective to figure out what the true story is. But when it seems like Zuckerberg starts focusing on the fact that Instagram is cannibalizing Facebook, right? Like, so Zuckerberg really starts like cutting out Instagram. You know, there's no longer links to Instagram from Facebook. 
but Instagram now has to link to Facebook for everything and like start setting up all of these things saying, oh, it's better for the company as a whole if more people are on Facebook. You know, I, I just don't know, right? Like, because the data isn't presented of, okay, from an ad selling perspective, like, is that truly what it means that, you know, one, one minute that somebody spends on Facebook is more valuable than a minute spent on Instagram? Maybe that's the case. Or maybe it's just that Zuckerberg is being petty. I do imagine kind of like what I guess I know of Zuckerberg from watching the social network and reading random articles. It seems like he cares much more about the success and I think would would allow Instagram to be more successful if he wasn't truly concerned about that cannibalization. But I also know that from, you know, all that I know about Mark Zuckerberg that he does seem to be a little petty at times. So so maybe maybe it is also personal. Yeah, I, I do get the feeling that I'm sure Zuck believes that it's like just a rational, like it's what's best for the company sort of thing. But I do get the feeling that like he just wants to put Facebook out there in a way that's like actually detrimental to the other brands. Like people don't think Facebook's cool. They probably do still think Instagram's cool. They definitely think Oculus is cool. And like Facebook should just like stop tacking Facebook onto these other products. Like, frankly, any like physical device that they're creating, they should just brand Oculus. Oculus has a better brand. Like, go with that. You know, stop like highlighting the fact that WhatsApp is a Facebook product. Like, I think people are probably using it less as a result of that now. I'm Again, I, I think that their numbers are still very good, but I think that those companies would succeed more with less association to Facebook. I think obviously the association does benefit Facebook itself, but that they should focus more on um, growing these separate products and, you know, where it's logical integrating them to some extent, but I, I would, I would definitely back off if I were in charge. Like, I, I do think it's, it's the wrong move for the long-term success of all of those brands to highlight so much that they're all part of Facebook. I agree with you that he wants to be cool and it's kind of lame to be going after being cool when you're that old, when you're in your mid thirties and you're also like head of a multi hundred billion dollar company, like yeah, let's worry more about profits than being cool. Okay. So we made it through the general story. Is there anything that we missed? Is there anything else about the book you wanted to mention? There were two things for me that just from kind of a consulting, what can I bring back to my team perspective that I thought were were interesting in the book? One was how easy it did seem to be at Facebook that you were able to run an A-B test and kind of prove your point with data. I actually forget the specific anecdote of what uh, Instagram was trying to do that the Facebook team was against and Systrom was like, well, I know how to convince people at Facebook. We can just run an A-B test and like, let's do it this for 50% of our users and show what the uplift is. And it proved his point. Um, and I think, you know, I've worked at companies that talk a lot about A-B testing. One, it's never so easy to just flip a switch as it is in software to do and you never get the numbers uh, that you do in software. But that that did seem cool that, you know, they could... They were set up to easily do that and people were bought in when they did it. Second is that I think that there was just a lot of problem solving that I thought was interesting how they went about it and that they walked through in the books several anecdotes of challenges that they saw from users. And we touched on some of these, right? Like, so the challenge with bullying that uh, celebrities brought up. So they made, you know, the option to turn off comments. But there were there were other things like that throughout the book, you know, just people being intimidated by seeing mostly these beautiful posts from influencers and therefore not posting as much themselves because they felt like their posts like didn't deserve to be on the newsfeed. So that was like when they changed the feed to be 
based on an algorithm rather than uh, chronological so that people saw posts from like their friends more than they saw the posts from the influencers, which, you know, then had backlash at the time. But I, I, I thought it was interesting how they kind of seemed to be pretty systematic in how they went about identifying problems and developing solutions to them. So the, those are my kind of two takeaways from a teaming and problem-solving perspective that I had from the book. I thought just one fun anecdote in it that I'd, I had never really thought about was how they go into like how Paris Hilton became famous for being famous before there was Instagram. And so like she had like a manager and she he would like pay paparazzi and they would like wear a scarf. So she knew like that was the paparazzi that she needed to look at. Um, so that like the picture would be perfect. And so like, it was all this like very orchestrated and planned out thing in order to get these photos ultimately into page six and, you know, whatever these different like news outlets and that like she had figured out this way to sort of become famous for being famous before. And then that the Kardashians and whatnot, then like kind of figured out that like, oh, with Instagram, like you can just go direct to your people. You don't need to like get the paparazzi and the newspapers involved. Like you can just take the photos yourself. You can hire a photographer directly to do it. You don't have to be like, so sketchy with like paying the paparazzi and then pretending like, oh, you don't want that photo to get out and all of that. But I thought that whole dynamic of like Paris Hilton being the like the the entry point beforehand and the fact that she was really resistant to Instagram because she was getting so much money for these photos and whatnot that like when Instagram was like, no, we're not going to pay you. You just like post on here. She was just like, oh, absolutely not. But then like ultimately, you know, did join, but is, you know, has a whole lot fewer followers than the Kardashians and whatnot. Yeah, that was great anecdote. So one thing we haven't touched on that I'm kind of curious about is how the two of you use Instagram. What's your personal experience been like with Instagram? Aha. All right. Um, so let me let me open it up. If I go check this out, I I am following 580 people, which seems like a whole lot, but I also have 590 followers, which I'm, you know, proud of that ratio, right? Like that's what they talk about in the book. I think I mostly use it socially. Uh, it looks like the first poster that I, the first picture that I posted was in 2013, which had two likes at the time. So super exciting. Yeah, I think I think I'm like a social user of it. I actually did on my new iPhone uh, use the the feature that cuts me off after 15 minutes on a day uh, because I mostly open it up and just start scrolling. And then suddenly it's 15 minutes later. So now I can only do that once in a day, but yeah, I'm not like a huge user of it, but definitely do use Instagram socially. And I find it an important part of my life. Yeah. I also joined in 2013. So I guess we, we both were, were post acquisition uh, users I was actually really intense about Instagram for about a year where like I, I just got into photography and I really would like walk around New York City trying to find like interesting things to take photos of. And I would put, you know, captions that like sort of gave you details about the the thing that I was showing you. So I did a lot of like architecture photography and like landscapes, those types of things. And yeah, so my, my handle was uh, or is uh, facts for photos. So I would give like, you know, interesting facts about the thing that I was sort of trying to uh to show. And so, yeah, I, I, I took it pretty seriously. I actually even did do like a free trial for one of those like follow unfollow things that they talk about in the book a little bit. So um, there were these, I think Instagress is what they talk about in the book. I don't think that was the name of the one that I used, but I honestly don't remember. But I did like at least a free trial. And I think I used it for maybe a month where uh, basically you would give your login credentials to this app and then it would log into your Instagram and it would like like, follow, unfollow, uh, comment, 
sort of generically on other people's photos based off of hashtags and like locations that you gave it that were sort of relevant to what you were taking pictures of. And so, yeah, I mean, it, it did work really well. I think I, I got up to like maybe 2,500 followers at one point while I was doing that and would get, you know, sometimes 500, 600 likes on some of the photos. Again, I think a lot of that basically was that app, you know, with whoever other um, users they had given their credentials to, like then were sort of, sort of probably automatically liking my photos and stuff too. So it felt a little creepy. And so I actually stopped using it. I think before, uh, again, in the book, they talk about Instagram ultimately banning it. But yeah, I mean, I, I I used it a lot. And then I feel like it was when I moved to Boston that I kind of just didn't have as interesting of things to take photos of, to be honest. Like my commute was like much shorter. And so, you know, I, t- I took a few photos in Boston and things like that, but I just wasn't exploring Boston in the same way that I did New York. And so honestly, just like kind of petered off in terms of taking photos. And then I feel like with with COVID, like have really decrease, you know, the amount of time that I'm, you know, outside seeing interesting things. And so, yeah, I, I actually haven't posted to Instagram in, in a year and a half. I'll plug that. I think we might be getting a puppy soon. So maybe I'll, I will soon have a dog Instagram account. I'm not really an Instagram user. I'm not shallow enough to be an Instagram user, but I will start following your puppy account. <laughs> anyway, very interesting <laughs> to hear that well, anecdote, David. Thanks for sharing it. Kopech, that was, that was a good insult, but then you, you know, Came up with a follower, so fine. (laughs) (laughs) Puppies are definitely the best uh, follows on Instagram. Actually, my fraternity's dogs have been great to follow too, because then it's just like pictures of those dogs around like the Dartmouth campus. And and those are always fun. I will say that while reading the book, I started using Instagram more just to kind of get a sense of what we were reading about. And I love a lot of the travel photography. And and David, I love some of your old photos too. I was looking through. So I see the value there. I just think that what a lot of people use it for is pretty shallow. Not everybody, but what a lot of people do. Okay, so the big question, do you recommend this book? And if you do, who should read it? In general, I don't know that I really would recommend the book. I would say if you are really interested in social media and like the history of Instagram, then it I definitely did learn some things from it. But just given my discomfort with trusting everything in it, I just don't know that I really can fully advocate that that people do read it. I think it's a better book for the social commentary than perhaps the you know, business book that we uh, tried to focus on in this podcast, which is interesting. You know, it, it did win an award for best business book of the year in 2020, right? So, so there was there was a reason that we selected this book, but yeah, I think it's it much more highlights the social commentary uh, and kind of the the social impact of Instagram than what I like to read a business book for, which is like, what is the takeaway? Like, what's that idea that I can bring back to my team next week so that we can be more impactful? Or like, if I'm, what can I store away in my mind for being a founder one day? Um, and I, I don't think that there was that many nuggets like that in this book, but it, it is honestly probably something that I would recommend more for like my younger cousins, right? Who are very caught up in the social media world and the, this is their li- life to read something like this and understand to an extent how manipulated it is, right? Like, and that nothing on Instagram really is genuine all the way back to how the Instagram team is curating everything. Um, I think it actually would be valuable for somebody like that to read this. I also think it's a it's a quick read. It's an easy read. You know, the narrative form, Kopech, you might not like it because you don't know who said something, but it does make it certainly easier to read and it reads a little more like a novel, so for that reason, I might recommend it to somebody like that, but I wouldn't recommend it necessarily as a like business book that we're going to have the best takeaways from. 
Yeah, I agree a lot with what you said, Eli. I personally can't recommend it, though, for three reasons. One is the structure. So you're getting this business narrative, and then in the middle of the book, you suddenly have a couple chapters that go into kind of the social aspects, and it totally just throws off the narrative. And it's actually a significant chunk of the book. And so the book actually, if you take out those couple of chapters, starts to feel kind of short, and we never get into the details of some of the major characters. We only really get to know Kevin Systrom and to a lesser extent, Mark Zuckerberg, but all the other top executives at Instagram, including Mike Krieger, we don't really get to know. So that's one of my issues. Another issue is that the technical aspects of building the company are not covered almost at all. And I know it's a general audience book, but when you're writing a book about a software company, there should be something about building software in it and some of the challenges that they overcame that some of the other social networks may not have. And I think that's an important aspect that's totally left out. I'm not saying we had to see source code or we had to see uh, get into the nitty gritty details, but it was just totally not there. And then my last issue with the book is what I mentioned earlier, which is how it's not a good historical document and how this is about a really important topic. And I praise the author a lot for taking on Facebook because that's not easy to do right now. I mean, it's, it's easy. Well, in some ways, it's easy because everyone's taking them on. But on the other hand, they're a very, very powerful company. She's a technology reporter who wants to have good relations with Facebook, I'm sure, for future stories. And she's taking them on pretty hard in this book. So I admire that she did that. I think she's a competent writer. But I didn't find the book that exciting. And for all the reasons I mentioned above, I just can't really recommend it to most readers unless you're really into Instagram and you want to know the story. It is a cohesive story that's told. And like Eli said, if you want to know more what kind of goes on behind the scenes for influencers and how fake a lot of the things in our social media really are, it's a good book from that perspective as well, in my opinion. Okay, so next month, we're going to be reading Liftoff, The Story of Conserve by Hema Hattangadi and Ashish Sen. I hope I pronounced those correctly. It's a story about an Indian family-run energy meter company that goes from the 1990s to the 00s from being kind of embattled to being a major player and, in fact, the largest energy management company in India. So I'm really looking forward to that book. Before we leave, is there anything that the two of you want to plug? And how can people get in touch with you? You can follow me on Twitter at David G. Short or on Clubhouse at David Short. Ooh, that's new. You can follow me on Twitter at image 46. You can follow me on Instagram also at image 46. I do post to stories quite a bit. Probably use that a little more than my Twitter. I'm on Clubhouse, but I don't know how you can follow me there. One thing that I do want to plug, which I am very excited about, my soon-to-be sister-in-law's book is coming out in April. And it is now public news that Mindy Kaling... Uh, has the rights to adapt it for a TV show. So, Kopech, I'll send this to you so we can, can include it in the notes. You can go out and pre-order it. It's called Gold Diggers, and I have not read it yet, but I am very excited for it. That sounds awesome, and congrats to your sister-in-law. I will definitely put that in the show notes. You can reach me on Twitter. I'm at Dave Kopech, D-A-V-E-K-O-P-E-C, and I recently wrote on my blog a review of No Filter, so I'll link to that in the show notes as well. Thank you so much for joining us again this month. We really love having you. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button in your podcast player of choice. And we look forward to seeing you again next month.